Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Cadden. Our tech bro visionaries certainly have vision, but is their vision radical or is it mundane? Like, think of the metaverse. We've talked about this before on the show. On the one hand, it is a completely new world that Mark Zuckerberg is building. But on the other hand, this world looks very familiar. Let's take a look at what working in the metaverse will be like. Imagine if you could be at the office without the commute. You would still have that sense In transportation, there's electric vehicles, ride-hailing apps, and Elon Musk's traffic tunnels. Traffic is soul-destroying. It's like acid on the soul. It's horrible. This is, I think, finally, 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 there's something. Something that I think could solve the goddamn traffic problem. Is this world that different from the one that we live in? Isn't it just more cars, cars, and cars? We've been producing a series of episodes on techno-utopian thinking, and I'm coming to a rather surprising conclusion. There's not much of it. The Silicon Valley vision has become mundane. If they do have a utopia, it is a utopia of the status quo. Their goal is to find technological solutions to sustain the unsustainable. There is another vision, though. It seems mundane, but today it might just be downright radical. Reinvest in public infrastructure. So in transportation policy, how about we fund public transit, high-speed rail, and fix our crumbling infrastructures? These technologies are old. The ideas are there. They've been there for a long time. It's just that the public money isn't. Today's episode is about how Silicon Valley's tech won't save us. If anything will, it will be political will and political mobilization. Who better to talk to us about that than Paris Marx? Marx is host of the podcast Tech Won't Save Us. That's on the Harbinger Media Network, and it is a weekly podcast that critiques the technological solutionism of Silicon Valley. Paris Marx, after the break. Hello, dear New Books Network listeners. As you can see, Darts and Letters is syndicated on the network. So if you're finding us for the first time, consider subscribing to our main feed. Darts and Letters covers the politics of academia, science, expertise, and intellectual culture. If you like this conversation, you'll surely like our other episodes. We've done a bunch on the politics of tech bro intellectuals and tech policy, like our three-part series on technocracy, or our 62nd episode with Ben Tarnoff on socializing the internet. 
Or how about our 47th episode on techno-utopian thinking at world's fairs? You can find all those and more at dartsandletters.ca. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. Paris Marx is host of Tech Won't Save Us, a podcast looking at the technological solutionism of Silicon Valley. I initially spoke to Paris thinking to have them on our technocracy series, but we enjoyed the conversation so much, we decided that instead we'd play it as a longer, full episode. Paris and I have a wide-ranging conversation about the Silicon Valley worldview and how that worldview has shifted since they've started the podcast. Plus, we discuss public transit and transportation policy. Paris is author of the new book, Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. Paris Marks, my esteemed Harbinger colleague, welcome to Darts and Letters. I'm, I'm so excited to finally have you on the show. Thanks so much. I'm excited to join you. You're one of the most astute critics of kind of techno utopian ideologies today. I mean, how did you find yourself here as this sort of like tech critic? What's the background? I think I would say, you know, I, certainly from a youngish age, I was interested in technology. You know, I taught myself to code HTML, CSS, make websites, those sorts of things. I was into Sony products because uh, I was a PlayStation fan. And then, and then later I was kind of an Apple fanboy. So that naturally was how things worked out. And then kind of my route into writing about technology critically was really through looking at urban technologies, the rollout of Uber in particular, but also smart city technologies, writing about that critically. And then after doing that for a couple of years, going and doing a master's program at McGill in geography, where you know I studied what the tech industry was trying to do in transportation, how they were trying to change the transportation system and their ideas around that and, and the issues with those ideas. And so I think that transportation and cities were kind of my way into thinking about technology in a critical way and then kind of broadening that out over time as I was learning more and more about the industry, about the history of the industry and about the problems with how it approaches you know, a lot of the problems in our world and the ideas that you know, all we need is some better technologies and we can solve them. It seems like we're like roughly around the same age. And I remember growing up with some of these technologies. And, you know, some people talk about our generation being kind of like the generation that was figuring itself out on the internet. And there was a lot of kind of vaguely left techno utopianism, you know, with kind of piracy movements and like distributed networks and that sort of thing. And and it really captured a lot of people's imagination, sort of probably made them techno-libertarians or techno-utopians. But I kind of resisted it. I'm just, I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, how you interacted with those, those visions at the time. If you remember, like, did, did they leave a mark at all? Like, was there ever a, an alternate reality where Paris Marx might have been the techno-libertarian, techno-utopian? <laughs> Maybe it's possible, but I feel like at least at the time that I was using the internet. I I didn't kind of interact with that so much. Like, you know, certainly in the kind of late first decade of the 2000s, early 2010s, you know, I was certainly paying attention to, you know, the WikiLeaks stuff, kind of the anonymous stuff, especially that arose around um, the Arab Spring, uh, you know, those sorts of movements. And certainly I think that there is a particular kind of libertarian approach that is associated with these approaches to technology, these ideas about technology that 
they were put out and certainly they were embraced, you know, more broadly at the time before I think there was a, a more of a reassessment of what was being proposed in those in those moments or kind of the narratives of technology in these moments. But those obviously, as you were saying, were connected to kind of deeper movements, you know, coming out of the kind of hacker cultures that existed before the ideas, you know, in the in the 1990s about the internet and how the internet was going to be this kind of place of like a libertarian freedom uh, and how those things didn't really come to pass because as we know, you know, corporations took over the internet effectively and, and that was something that was uh, engineered to be so. Your podcast has such a scope, you know, it's been going on a few years now and so much is happening in the world of technology. And it's, it's, you know, people talk about like a tech clash and it seems like sort of people's perceptions of especially the kind of big five are changing. I'm wondering just from your perspective, like how the context of the public discourse around the politics of technology has changed since, you know, the first episode till, till now. I think that the podcast emerged at a really interesting moment in kind of the discussion around technology and, and the discourse around technology in the tech industry in particular, you know, I would place the kind of tech lash back around 2015, 2016, right? It's very much associated with kind of the Brexit moment, the Trump moment, the revelations around Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and how that kind of all explodes. And then there's kind of like a snowball effect where, you know, you have more critical coverage of Facebook, but then a lot of the other tech companies as well, right? And so that's kind of playing out across a number of years there. But then, you know, Biden wins the election, as we know happened, uh, not questioning whether he's the legitimate president, even if I'm not a big fan of him. Um, <laughs> so that happens. Trump is out of the White House. You have this kind of association that is gone. But then the pandemic also happens and the tech industry itself sees an opportunity to seize on that moment to try to recast itself to present a new narrative around itself, right? So there's been this really critical kind of questioning of the tech industry for a number of years. A lot of the powerful people in the tech industry certainly do not like being seen in that way, certainly do not like critical coverage of their companies, of their investments, things like that. Um, and they want to see that change. And so in March, I believe it's March of 2020, maybe it's April, Mark Andreessen, who is this really powerful venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, um, A16Z is his you know firm, um, very well known, was very prominent in investing in a lot of this crypto bullshit that was going on during the pandemic. He writes an essay called It's Time to Build. And basically what is in that essay is kind of an attempt to really champion the tech industry to say, actually, we are doing all this great stuff that is changing the world, that is making the world better. We're seeing that governments can't address these serious problems that, you know, everyone is dealing with right now. And so if we actually want to address those, we need the tech industry to step up to kind of wield its wealth and its power in order to push further to have our ideas of how these problems should be solved pushed onto the world. And so there's a greater investment in media as a result of that to get their narrative out into the world. You see more people in the tech industry kind of take up this call. When Facebook was facing criticism over the Francis Haugen revelations, 
in 2021 and then went and revealed the metaverse in November of 2021. People who watched that might remember that there was a couple minute clip at the beginning of this unveiling of the metaverse where Mark Zuckerberg is responding to these allegations and is really saying, you know, there are some people who don't want to think about the future, who are focused on the present and the past, but we are thinking about making the world better. We're the builders. I'm with you. Um, we're not going to be distracted by these kind of criticisms and we're going to keep pushing forward. It's very much a rejection of the criticisms that were being made by Haugen and lawmakers and, you know, other critics at the moment and saying, you know, we are thinking about the future. Sure, we're going to mess up sometimes, but, you know, otherwise we're not going to make the world a better place. And so in this moment, especially as, you know, Web3 is ascendant, there's this new kind of industry that is being championed by tech as something that is going to like change the world and, and whatnot, like in the past, and the metaverse in particular, they are kind of pushing the tech industry as something that we shouldn't be seeing in this critical light anymore, but that we should be embracing. And then at the same time, I think that we see um, some people in tech journalism who had taken this more critical turn during the years of the tech lash really want to embrace Web3 and the metaverse as the way forward to present these as as positive things to buy into the hype around them that was coming out from these founders from these venture capitalists and i think that we've very clearly seen that that was misplaced that these technologies especially in the crypto web3 space were really scammy where ponzi schemes were aimed at getting people's money and were not really about improving the world in any kind of tangible way and so you know that's that's a long way of saying that i think that we're in a really interesting moment where the tech industry is trying to push back trying to reclaim the narrative but as a result, in part of the of the tech lash and kind of the criticism that it has made mainstream, they're finding it more difficult to do that. That's really fascinating. It's on point. It, it does seem to me like there's a somewhat, maybe it's rhetorical, abandonment of the kind of er techno libertarianism, right? There's the, especially with Facebook, you you kind of see a company that is trying to play like an active role in governance uh, because, because they realize that the, that vision isn't kind of selling anymore. Certainly, yeah. And I and I would agree. I think you're seeing this shift in the tech industry because, you know, there's a need to have that shift happen in order to you know, maintain their profits in order to support the industry, right? So for a long time, the tech industry existed in this space. You know, if we think about neoliberalism the past number of decades, where the government was really kind of hands off, step back, we need a small government. These were a lot of the narratives. And the tech industry is also heavily influenced by kind of personal liberty narratives and personal empowerment narratives that come out of the counterculture. Um, Stuart Brand, the whole earth catalog, Steve Jobs really picks this up, is really a champion of it. Then that gets merged with neoliberalism later, right? This is kind of called the Californian ideology described by Richard Barbrook and Andy Cameron. And so that really dominates, especially a lot of the period, you know, the personal computer era, certainly, but is also kind of picked up in the period of the internet. You know, when you have people like John Perry Barlow, arguing that the internet is going to be this this kind of land that exists beyond the reach of the government where we're all going to have these personal liberties and freedoms and blah, 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 right? And, and it's a load of bullshit because that allows the, the corporations to take over because they're really focused on the government and opposing the government. 
and giving kind of a, a free ride to corporations so they can take over what's going on there. And so this is this is really powerful. You see a lot of the companies sees this as well because it makes them look like the underdogs, you know, the Davids to the kind of corporate Goliaths that exist out there. They're, they're kind of championing people. They're fighting back. Um, but certainly, especially in like the post-2008 period, they become the Goliaths themselves. And so then you start to see more state scrutiny of these companies, especially as we've seen in the past few years, you know, the, the challenges that, oh, should we be breaking these up? Should we be um, enforcing antitrust regulations against them? All these sorts of things, right? These, the former kind of smaller players have become the giants and now we need to deal with that. And so naturally, I think that necessitates a change in how the tech industry uh, approaches politics, how it thinks about politics. And it has to be more engaged with the government, being more proactive in ensuring that, you know, those regulations, those kind of breakups don't happen. And I think that another piece of that that's really important that we don't think about enough is that during that previous period that we were talking about, the United States was the global hegemon, right? It really didn't have a challenge to its kind of global power. And as a result, especially as the internet grew into a global network that allowed American companies in particular to go global and to have you know, prominence in a lot of countries around the world. Now you have China rising as a technological rival to the United States and its companies kind of having that ability to go global as well, whether it's Huawei and, you know, network infrastructure, whether it's TikTok as a competitor on the social media front, and, and certainly there's many more besides that as well. So China now presents a challenge to the kind of global dominance, the global tech dominance of American companies. And so that requires a greater collaboration with the American state in order to push back against Chinese tech to protect American tech and those narratives that we need to challenge China and we need to stop China and stop them from like taking over and having their companies take over also benefits the American tech companies that don't want to be broken up, that don't want to be regulated because they say we need to remain big in order to, you know, challenge China and what's coming out of there. Case in point, the recent semiconductor bill, right? I mean, this is like a classic case where the tech is constantly asking for a bailout. I mean, not just a bailout, the whole kind of artifice, the whole infrastructure rather, is one that's built on massive uh, state subsidy, as, as we know too well, even though rhetorically they, they don't like to point that out. Yeah, the, the whole tech industry is the result of state spending since like, you know, the Second World War, even before that, right? The creation of Silicon Valley really comes out of it. And then even in that period I was talking about, like in the 70s and the 80s, when they're promoting these narratives around individual empowerment, around the free market, there's still a ton of public money that's flooding into these companies. A lot of like the major internet companies, Google comes out of Stanford, right? It's a research project that gets commercialized. Um, and many of these other companies benefit from public funding as well. And certainly for a while, that kind of narrative, I think, was on the down low, even though the money was still flooding in. But increasingly, I think you see a public kind of recognition that this is actually happening in the tech industry, whether it's Elon Musk benefiting from subsidies for Tesla or uh, public contracts for SpaceX or NASA funding for SpaceX, you know, the semiconductor bill, certainly, and even now as well, as Facebook is facing this pressure, this criticism, they are trying to, 
use the growth of TikTok and the fact that TikTok is a Chinese company in order to direct attention at TikTok instead and say, we should be banning this. You know, we shouldn't have Chinese social media companies. We should have American social media companies. And it's interesting, one piece of kind of the Francis Haugen testimony that she gave to Congress that wasn't picked up on so much was they asked her specifically about uh, whether Facebook should be working more with the American government. And she was like, yeah, you know, we see Chinese actors, Iranian actors, like using Facebook in order to kind of promote the the ideas that they want. And Facebook should be working even closer with the American government to ensure that it's promoting like its national security concerns. And so these things are all kind of going on there as well. It does seem like such a, a far cry from like the origins of the whole earth catalog and Wired and the most radical kind of techno-utopian vision. Although obviously the trajectory of a lot of those actors goes right into these, the corporate sphere and, and, and the consumer economy. And in your book, Road to Nowhere, you have like a pretty fascinating uh, chapter that uh, both looks at this history, but also some of the strange, I guess you'd call it like ideologically heterodox configurations of people um, in the tech industry. And, you know, if people don't know, I mean, Fred, you, you cite Fred Turner as a great book on this, but I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that kind of confluence of the hippie individualism and that kind of libertarianism in California that creates this California ideology that you mentioned. Yeah. So, you know, in this moment, you know, in the 60s and early 70s, in the Bay Area in particular, you have a lot of these kind of countercultural hippie ideas that are going on. Fred Turner describes how there's kind of two different strands of this of this counterculture, right? On the one hand, you have the kind of new left that really is focused on making change and opposing, you know, government policies or whatnot in a political way, right? They're demonstrating, they're trying to achieve um, change through these demonstrations, through organizations through these actions. But then there's also kind of the more hippie group, I guess, that is more focused on change through kind of personal empowerment, personal enlightenment, you know, so they're having the kind of drug and psychedelic experiences. And they believe that this is the way through which you change the world for the better. You have people have these kind of personal realizations about one another. And they're also associated with the kind of attempt to opt out of society by creating these communes that fail by the late 70s. Uh, for the most part, they're all kind of failures and they have to enter back into society. One of the things that Fred Turner notes about these sorts of people um, is a lot of them are kind of, you know, you're kind of white, middle class sort of people who are just kind of opting out of what is existing at the time, what is expected of them. Many cases, they're college educated as well. And so when, you know, this brand of the counterculture kind of fails, they're still pretty well set up to enter back into the kind of American mainstream into corporate America to get the jobs. And then it kind of gets recast as, you know, how do we change society? Okay, we enter into these corporations and we change them from the inside, right? Because you need a new justification because for economic reasons, you you have to go get a job, right? And so you need to find some way to spin it to yourself. And certainly Stuart Brand is, in many of these kind of tech histories, is held up as someone who helps to do a lot of these things or, or to, to kind of create a narrative or a justification for many of these things. And, you know, at the same time, there are people who would argue that maybe Stuart Brand's importance to this narrative is, 
exaggerated a bit by the people in tech who, who are really kind of close to him. But certainly he creates the Cole Earth catalog in the late 60s, early 70s that is really influential to a lot of these tech folks that brings a lot of these people together. But then he also has the trajectory where he is kind of a capitalist. He comes from a well-off family. He goes into you know, business as well. And even he kind of goes against some of these ideas that he talks about in the early part about the personal empowerment using small scale technologies to, you know, kind of kind of empower the individual. Um, he, you know, starts to promote space colonization, nuclear energy, all these things that go really against these ideas that he previously promoted. And, you know, an interesting connection here, he funds the work of Gerard O'Neill on space colonization and space colonies, what that would look like. Gerard O'Neill teaches Jeff Bezos and Jeff Bezos is really inspired by Gerard O'Neill's ideas. And so now today, when you hear Jeff Bezos talk about the space colonies that we should be building, moving a trillion people into space, those are you know, the things that he wants to build are directly what was developed by Gerard O'Neill. And now Bezos is funding Stuart Brand's Long Now Foundation, which is seeking to build the 10,000 year clock in some desert in Texas or something like that. So there are all these like weird connections that that exist in this world. It's a fascinating um, trajectory. And on the face of it, it doesn't really seem to make sense, right? Like personal insurrection and like um, LSD colonies to seeing like techno-utopianism and techno-solutionism, techno-determinism ushered in and, and led by corporate America as somehow a radical alternative. But one of the things that I think is interesting, and you noted in the book, is how a lot of these technologies, namely the car, but also the computer, are sold in very, very individualist terms. So it is actually still, uh, it's a technologically enabled kind of personal insurrection. Maybe this is a good, good place to transition from jobs to the car, but I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about that that image and, and why Jobs compared the computer to the car. If you think about the kind of transportation system or infrastructure that existed before the car came along, you know, certainly they were bicycles, certainly you could walk around, but a lot of people were reliant on streetcars and these more collective means of getting around, trains as well, right? And so the car kind of emerges and part of the narrative that gets built up around that, certainly in the early days, it's something that is just for wealthy people um, because they're the only ones who can afford it. And, you know, there's not a lot of space on the roads. They haven't been remade yet to make the automobile a mass product. It's considered like a, a touring vehicle, right? So you're wealthy enough, you can own one, and now you can go on these drives through the countryside that the people who are stuck in cities can't do because, you know, they don't have access to this, right? And so over time, this narrative gets built that the car is a form of personal freedom. Andre Gore says that there's kind of like a bourgeois ideology that is kind of entrenched in the car itself because it gives the owner this idea that they are individually empowered, that they can decide where they want to go, that they are free to go anywhere they want, right? And these are all narratives that we are used to from the car advertising that, you know, we've experienced for, for ages, right? And so then when the personal computer comes along in, I believe it would be the 70s, you know, Jobs very clearly ties this back to the automobile, right? He says that it's like the Volkswagen, whereas the old kind of, you know, mainframe computers that were used by companies empowered the kind of corporate hierarchies. The personal computer was the individual Volkswagen that empowers the individual that allows them to 
do whatever they want and improve themselves and whatnot, right? Uh, and you can very clearly see how these two things are are tied together, but also how it benefits this narrative that Jobs is kind of picking up from the Cole Earth catalog, from the kind of countercultural ideas that exist there, that this is a technology that is for you, that is empowering the individual. It's allowing you to kind of fight back against these corporate hierarchies and tyrannies and, and kind of empowers you. And certainly we see that in, in Apple's advertising as like, uh, you know, we still see it today, right? Where they're empowering the creatives and, and all this sort of stuff. And so, you know, but Jobs also kind of links that to the neoliberal ideas that are certainly ascendant through the 80s that, you know, these are changes that we need to do through the three free market. So engaging with technology, engaging with the market, empowering individuals, this is how we make the world a better place. And certainly as a result of those kind of narratives, the political and, and using the political in order to make positive change gets downplayed because, you know, that doesn't work for these people. And it also goes against kind of the, the kind of broader political narrative of the time that, you know, is very beneficial to corporate America. So I want to transition to um, our transportation system, which, you know, obviously suffering from years, decades of um, disinvestment, it is very much crumbling. There is a problem here. Anyone that, you know, takes the TTC when it breaks down or um, has to commute an hour and a half to get to work or is on a bridge that falls knows. And of course, I mean, your book is primarily about Silicon Valley coming in and offering a techno solution. And it covers Uber, you know, smart cities, you name it, lots. And I'll go with you kind of wherever you want to go on that. But as a general sort of starting point question, to situate this within the wider theme or series of technocracy, I'm just wondering what that term means to you, essentially, and where you might see technocracy and technocratic solutionism to the problem of transportation. Where, where, where do you see it most? It's an interesting question because I feel like kind of technocratic planning is very common in transportation, you know, beyond the tech industry, right? It's something that we that we know about uh, that's been around for ages. You know, if we if we think back to Robert Moses kind of reshaping New York City in a very kind of technocratic way, we can go back to Baron Hausman kind of um, you know driving the boulevards through through Paris, remaking the city on his own. Um, you know, transportation I think is very well connected to technocratic thinking. And so then if we think about technocracy, you know, one of the things that I do in the book is I argue that really the remaking of cities in the early 20th century and, and as well like in the post-war period was something that was not really driven by consumer demand or, you know, because the public really wanted this to happen, but rather was driven by corporate desires, corporate influences, the desire to sell a whole load of cars, to have these industries grow as a result for a lot of companies to make a lot of profit, right? And they were really driving a lot of these kind of remaking of the cities that were happening. Certainly there were kind of government incentives there as well. Um, if you think about in, in the Cold War period, the desire to spread people out to ensure that there were not a lot of people kind of... Um, located in one place in case of a nuclear attack. This was actually a, a real kind of consideration that people had that started to kind of incentivize spreading people over over much larger 
space, I guess. Um, but then also the the thinking about labor, right? Right now we have this transportation system, you know, not not now, but they're thinking at the time we have this transportation system that's dependent on streetcars, on trains, where, you know, these workers have a lot of power, can shut down the transportation system really easily. If we have a transportation system that's more reliant on automobiles, where the car has already been sold, you know, the workers have much less power to shut that down. Sure, you can shut down the factory that creates the automobiles that puts them out on the road, but you can't really shut down the, the system itself. That's much tougher, right? So there, there are a lot of incentives here, but I would say the driving force is the desire to make profit and to remake the transportation system to benefit a lot of economic actors. And so if we look at what's going on right now with the transportation system, the proposal to, you know, have ride-hailing services, self-driving cars, all these other things that the tech companies are promoting, you know, they would say that they're disrupting the transportation system. I would say they're not doing that at all. They are just simply trying to integrate their technologies more into the transportation system that already exists so that they can start to make some money from that as well. And so they are very clearly trying to get us to buy into these ideas in, I guess, a bit of a technocratic way, maybe, so that they can enrich themselves as well at our expense, as these other companies um, have been successfully doing for much longer. Mm -hmm. And erode what little uh, democratic control. And I take your point that the, the transportation system is sort of uniquely undemocratic, it seems. It's never really never really been, but a bit, I mean, at least you had like labor unions and things like that, whereas Uber uh, and, and, you know, regulations about who can drive where and what and that kind of thing. And this is a direct affront to that. But, you know, one of the things that strikes me Again, you say this in the book, you, you quote uh, Murray Bookchin, and I think it's really quite an uh, uh, interesting quote where he uh, is talking about the problem of futurists and technologists in that they ask people, what do you buy at the mall? And then they try and whatever, address those questions or concerns, but they never ask the broader question of like, why do you go to the mall? Um, and that that leads me to think about how you know, the, the industry speaks so much about revolution and change and radical change. And at the same time, the, and, and techno-utopias, right? At the same time, their vision seems extremely curtailed. Like you said, integrating into the existing system. Um, so I was wondering if you talk a little bit about that. I mean, in their most grandiose vision, like take a company like Uber. I mean, what really, what is the vision? I'll say before I answer that directly, what immediately comes to mind when you talk about that is like, a, it was probably a decade ago now, one of the German car companies, maybe Mercedes, maybe Audi, had an ad where in the ad, they had a photo of Che Guevara to, to advertise their vehicle, right? You know, really revolutionary, right? And so you need to kind of pull from this cred in order to present it that way. Um, so it's really interesting just to see how there's always these kind of promises of revolution, of, of significant change. Um, but they're really in service of kind of continuing and entrenching a system that works very well for them, that's very profitable for them, right? And so, you know, if you're talking about Uber specifically, you know, the promise with Uber was that, okay, we have this transportation system that clearly isn't working, that clearly has a lot of problems where everyone owns their own vehicle. And so we are going to fix that problem by introducing this new technology where you can easily hail a vehicle so you don't need to own a car anymore or you don't need to drive your own car. You can just, you know, easily access this pool of vehicles. And as a result, that's going to make transportation more efficient. It's going to make it cheaper. So other people who maybe have difficulty getting around can access it because everything will be more affordable. It will reduce traffic because 
the cars will be working in a more efficient way. That will make it better for the environment. It will complement the transit system. So you can take your bus or your train and then hop on an Uber and get there, right? And so this all sounds really wonderful, right? It sounds like a great vision of the future that is going to improve a lot of the problems that we have right now. But then you have independent researchers and academics who come along a few years later actually get some independent data because, you know, it's important to remember Uber was really trying to ensure um, that people didn't get independent data, didn't want to share data unless it was very specific data sets that would, you know, give positive, favorable results for Uber. And so what these researchers found was that the promises Uber were, were making were all lies. It was not realizing these things. It made traffic worse, not better. It took people away from the transit system. It didn't complement it. The low prices were because Uber was losing billions of dollars a year in order to subsidize its service. And it's less and less willing and able because investors are demanding it you know, get in the black to do that. So it's not really serving these underserved groups. And even with those discounts, researchers found that it was mainly benefiting young college educated people in cities who are earning above average incomes. As I like to point out, you know, those are traits that typically uh, are associated with tech workers. And so a lot of these promises that were made about Uber were not fulfilled. Instead, we have a number of years where this promise is out there, where we're being told, oh, look, Uber is improving the transportation system, so we don't need to do anything. And in the meantime, we can let them trample over the rights of taxi workers, destroy workers' rights, rewrite labor laws as they did in California with Prop 22, then have that kind of rollout to other industries in a really, really harmful way. But they were able to sell us on that. And I would argue that part of selling us that vision was also to distract from alternatives, right? To delay that conversation about alternatives. Because why are you going to come in and say, actually, we need to invest in transit. We need to improve the transit system when Uber is out there and it's getting all this positive media attention. And it's saying, actually, we're solving all these problems that transit is supposed to solve. So you don't need to make the buses better or you don't need to improve you know, the, the subway system or something like that because we're just going to fix the problem. And a lot of lawmakers and, and people who are very influential bought into that promise and some of them still do. And I think that we can see that that really didn't help people. And so you alluded to um, public policy and a socially democratic transportation system. I'm wondering if you can kind of sketch a little bit of what that might look like for you and what some of the kind of, um, what are some of the key principles of that? Sure thing. Yeah. You know, I, I would say this. I think that at this very moment, I think that we have a real opportunity to think about the transportation system and to think about our communities in a different way, right? Because we already recognize that something needs to change to address the climate crisis, you know, the contribution to climate change caused by our transportation system, which in Canada is the second largest source of emissions after the oil and gas industry, right? So this is really important. This is something that we need to deal with. Right now, we're being sold a transition that very much relies on electric cars. And, you know, where we're being told that the way that we address this contribution to climate change is by electrifying our vehicles, but not really changing a whole lot else about how the transportation system works. And I don't think that that's a, going to deliver the results that we expect. And B, I don't think that it's like the best way to approach transportation or to fix broader problems in our communities, right? Because if we have this option or, or this opportunity, we should be looking at a much larger transformation 
especially when we look back at the history of the transportation system and see the degree of public intervention that was necessary in order to make us reliant on automobiles in the first place, right? And so if we are going to make these these transformations to encourage people or to make it even possible for people to really rely on public transit, on cycling, on alternatives, that requires a much stronger intervention by government in order to take the policies, make the investments, change the regulations that are going to encourage those things, right? To change how we plan transportation, change how we plan our communities, to make things more walkable, to ensure that the services and the and the businesses and things like that that people rely on are within a reasonable vicinity of, of where they live. The other thing I would say about this is that it's not just about transportation, right? The book is very much a transportation book, looking at the mobility systems, the proposals by Silicon Valley. But if we are really going to address these problems with the transportation system and how we live, we can't just look at, you know, improving transit, improving cycling infrastructure and things like that, because we also have a private housing system. And so what we find is that when we make these improvements to transit, to cycling infrastructure, make cities more walkable, it's in those areas where prices rise even faster, right? Because you have access to these amenities that are very valuable to people. And so the people who then most benefit from those investments are priced out and forced to go live further out in the suburbs where they don't have access to those things. So we need to recognize the problems of the transportation system, but then we also need to recognize how these other systems are kind of in conversation with that and how we need much greater investments in public housing, in community services to kind of build the real communities that I think we would want to see. Absolutely. Such a key element and also uh, a necessary component of a kind of shift in people's perception of public services in general, right? After decades of neoliberal disinvestment, people don't have really much of a faith in a lot of these uh, systems. So if you were to have well-funded uh, public housing and public schools and things functioning in a way, then you might have a little bit more enthusiasm for um, public solutions to something like a transportation problem. I get the sense that the average person doesn't get that excited about transit policy, for instance. Like, I mean, I know some people do, and but I think the average person just wants things to run and work and probably doesn't want to think about it all that much. But one of the things that I think is inspiring about your book is kind of reconfiguring this as a socially democratic question that we can sort of author a new future together. But how, how do you sell that to the average person that maybe just doesn't want to think about it, just wants kind of the buses to run on time? I think that part of the reason that the auto industry has been so successful is that it's linked the car to freedom, right? To this is how you get around, this is how you get anywhere you want. But I think that if you actually think about the automobile itself and, you know, the CAA, the Canadian Automotive Association has, has you know, studied this, it's actually a very expensive system, right? The average uh, car owner pays something like between eight and $13,000 a year for ownership of their car. When you add up all the costs that come with it. That's a really significant chunk of money, especially for people who are on lower incomes, right? That can be as much as, as rent in some parts of the country. And so I think that you need to kind of reframe the automobile. You know, do you really want to be paying this much for your car payment, then for your insurance, then for your maintenance, then for your gas and everything else that comes along with it? Or do we need to start to think about transportation in a different way? If we make these investments so that, you know, the bus is reliable, so that it comes on time, so that it's frequent, so that it serves you in the way that, you know, you deserve to have access to it, 
is that better for you than paying all of this money so that you can drive a car? And that's difficult right now because there are a lot of people who live in suburbs that have explicitly been designed so that they are difficult for transit services to work properly in because they're not funded properly in part, right? And so it does take kind of a, a reconfiguring of the narrative around transportation to kind of put cars in the negative light that I think they should be in and to try to show people that the way our transportation system works can be very different and can actually serve them in a really effective way if we fund it and plan it properly. And certainly we have the opportunity to do that if we just have the political will. That was Paris Marks, host of Tech Won't Save Us and author of Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. That's out now from Verso Books. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Darts is a production of Cited Media. Our producers are Jay Coburn, Mark Epilonio, Ren Banger, and myself, Gordon Caddick. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber, and our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop. This episode was part of a wider series that looks at the politics of technology and techno-utopian thinking. It received funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The scholarly advisors on this project are Professors Tanner Murleys at Ontario Tech University and Imra Zeman at the University of Toronto in Scarborough. We are also backed by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Thanks for listening. Check back in in two weeks.